The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. On this edition of the Strangeology Podcast, I'll be diving deep into the lore surrounding the enigmatic Nahani River Valley, also known as the Valley of Headless Men, a Canadian national park that holds a dark and mysterious history. There will be descriptions and recounting of violence and death, so listener discretion is advised. Listening to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Foran, and this is your place to explore the weird, strange, and unexplained. From cryptids and creatures, the paranormal, aliens and UFOs, forbidden knowledge, ancient mysteries, conspiracies, and more. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show, and thank you so much for hanging out today. It's been quite a while since I've done a research-based episode for the show. And I am really stoked to get back into it. Also, thanks for bearing with me for an extra week. My production schedule got a little bit behind with other things going on in life. But the topic for today is a big one. And I wanted to make sure that I also got all the details right for what I wanted to cover. And also, again, thank you for sticking around for the past few months while I changed up the show format and brought on a series of authors and researchers to provide their insights on a lot of really interesting topics that I'm interested in, and I hope that you found them interesting too. There are a few more that I have in the pipeline that will be released soon, but I've been itching to get back to the roots of the show and immerse myself in a topic that honestly I've been interested in for quite a while now. Before I get started, make sure to take a second to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening or streaming and set your device to auto download so you never miss a new episode. And it also helps me out a ton getting the show out to more people if you leave me a review. And if you haven't yet, make sure to follow me over on your preferred social media platform. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, the app formerly known as Twitter as well as Threads and YouTube. So if you enjoy the show, you enjoy memes, short-form video content from me, or want to keep up with what I'm doing on the regular, get notifications for when I'm hosting giveaways, or whatever else, the links for all those will be in the show notes. And a quick reminder, next Saturday, September 30th, I will be vending at the Sasquatch Festival and Calling Contest in Whitehall, New York. The event is going to be taking place at Skeensboro Park from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's an all-ages event. There's going to be tons of vendors, speakers, and at the end of the day, there is the calling contest where folks will go up and do their best Bigfoot call. It's a lot of fun. So if you're in the area, definitely come out, find my tent and say hello. I'll have a bunch of merch with me as well. So it's going to be a blast. We'll see you there. All right. Without further ado, since this is going to be a big episode, let's just get on to the topic. It's a research-based one, like I said before, and I've been wanting to do this forever. And this is all about the mysterious and should I say lethal, Nahani River Valley in Canada. And there's a lot going on in this, so strap in and join me as we enter the Valley of the Headless Men. To preface this, the majority of the information I researched about this comes from Hammerson Peters' book, Legends of the Nahani. 
If you want to check it out, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's a huge book with each chapter going into tons of detail. So pretty much every chapter is its own rabbit hole and could be its own episode. But I'm going to just be focusing and touching on the stranger and more significant tales that have come out of this place. Now, travel with me to one of the most remote wildernesses in Canada, the Deschaux region of the Northwest Territories. It's here that you're going to find the Nahani National Park Reserve, a place almost untouched by humans, encompassing mountainous terrain and countless river networks. And within this park reserve lies the Nahani River Valley, a place overflowing with stories of headless prospectors, lost tribes, missing people, curses, evil spirits, hidden gold, tropical valleys of lands that time forgot, cryptids, and prehistoric creatures as well. It's really everything but the kitchen sink that you could imagine for a strange type of window area. But make no mistake, while adventurers do visit here, this place isn't really a tourist attraction. There's no hotels or any modern amenities. This is mostly untouched wilderness. The Northwest Territory's population alone is only around 45,000 people, but this province covers almost 520,000 square miles, almost twice the size of Texas. Not quite as big as Alaska, but pretty close. The park reserve itself encompasses an area of around 11,600 miles, and it sits around 300 miles west of Yellowknife, to give you a perspective of where this is. It's just about on the border of the Yukon Territory, and it's just so remote that there's really only a couple of small settlements, and it's truly the middle of nowhere. As far as its topography and geographical features, there are several rivers and canyons that have carved through a section of the Mackenzie Mountain Range that goes through the park over millions of years that this process has taken place. Its main feature, however, is the South Nahani River, which has been a Canadian heritage river since 1987. And these features are why the reserve was named Nahani, a word from the Dene First Nations people who are from this area, which means river of the land of the Naha people. Even for the most experienced outdoors enthusiasts and survivalists, the Northwest Territories and especially the Nahani River Valley have proven to be a hazardous place that needs to be approached with the utmost preparedness and caution. AKA, don't just go waltzing into this area. There is also really only one road that will take you there after a 10-hour drive from Yellowknife to this small settlement, and from there, you have to go on a boat to cross into the reserve itself on the South Nahani. You could also fly a plane over it or a helicopter, but good luck finding a place to land because it's all forest, all mountains, deep valleys, tall peaks, you name it. Now, the biodiversity of Nahani National Park Reserve, along with its geologic history, is also said to be far higher than any other park in Canada. In fact, the whole area, about 200 to 500 million years ago, used to be an inland sea, and the sediments that were left there contain countless fossils. There's also over 200 animal species in this reserve today, from grizzly bears black bears and timber wolves to moose, caribou, fox, lynx, golden eagles, hawks, and so many more. It's just rich with life. It's estimated, based on what's been found so far in the archaeological record, that people first arrived to the Nahani Valley area around nine to 10,000 years ago. However, according to the folklore of the Diné, something evil lives in this particular valley. Now, the First Nations tribes who lived here for millennia remained uncontacted by Europeans until the 18th century when fur traders finally made it out that far west and began establishing trading posts like Nahani Butte, which is the last kind of settlement that you can stop at before you take the South Nahani into the valley itself. There's also Fort Simpson to the north and Fort Leard to the south. By the late 1890s, 
The Klondike Gold Rush began with around 100,000 prospectors, or as they were called, stampeders, making their way across North America to the Yukon to strike their fortunes. With the Nahani Valley being right there, it was often used as a path for prospectors to get to the infamous gold fields of the Yukon. Some, however, only made it as far as the Flat River, which is a branch off of the South Nahani, and they would attempt to find gold there, although it's reported that apparently there were no significant gold deposits that were ever found, although there are some contradicting reports on that, as we'll find out. As time went on, people began to notice that prospectors would enter the valley and never come out. This marked the beginning of stories of haunted valleys and legends of unknown creatures and other terrifying high strangeness within this remote place. Now, one of the aspects of the Nahani River Valley that could be an important factor with all the things going on here is the legend of the Tropical Valley. During the Klondike Gold Rush, several prospectors reported a certain area in the Nahani that would remain ice and snow-free year-round. This valley is said to have thousands of hot springs, which keep the climate much warmer than the surrounding mountainous terrain and other valleys in the area. And it's kind of like an oasis in an otherwise harsh environment. It's said that there are these almost prehistoric 10-foot-tall ferns, lush jungle-like vegetation, lots of game animals, and more. There's even evidence that this place was largely untouched by the last ice age. And as prospectors made their way back to civilization through the boreal forests of the Nahani in the wake of the gold rush, curious tales started coming out of the area of these men reporting animals long thought to have been extinct, like the mastodon and the mammoth. According to an account by a mining engineer named Frank Perry, he had come across this paradise amidst snow-covered peaks. He reported seeing robust vegetation along with moose and caribou that were well-fed and healthy. He even described them as looking almost boxy because they were eating so much. Now, according to Perry, he had been told stories from the local natives of ancient tracks of three-toed prehistoric beasts that had been found imprinted in sandstone and shale all around the terrain. And they believe that some of these things, which honestly sound like dinosaurs or giant flightless birds, could still be roaming the area. There's also, you guessed it, reports of hairy humanoid wild men as well from this area, which sounds a lot like Sasquatch and Bigfoot to me, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So there may be a lot of tall tales coming out of the Nahani, but this next part here is real history. In 1904, there was this group of brothers, the McLeod brothers, Willie and Frank, and their younger brother, Charlie, and they had decided to travel from Edmonton, where they were staying, to the Nahani Valley. So few people had been out there that they figured that if there was gold there, it must be in great supply. The brothers were of Mady's descent and were experienced frontiersmen who were used to living and surviving out in the wilderness, so they weren't concerned with getting lost or starving out in the Nahani country. They traveled for weeks by train, boat, and foot until they finally arrived at the mouth of the South Nahani River, which is the gateway to the Nahani Valley. From there, they traveled by canoe to reach the interior of this zone. Eventually, the South Nahani branches off into a lot of other rivers. There's the Flat River, which is more in the central part of the valley, and it's kind of the wrong name for it because it's this super treacherous river full of rapids and dangerous turns. However, this was the area that they decided to go into and set up camp. So the story goes that they get right to business, they set up their sluice boxes in the river, and these are tools used by gold prospectors. They're basically these long, skinny boxes with different leveling filters and ridges on them. You can either put them directly in a river or you can set them up on a kind of makeshift table or platform nearby. And what you do is you take a shovel full of rocks and sediment and put it in the box, pour water in it, which helps to separate the larger material from the smaller and down to the particulate. It's a faster way 
to do it versus using a gold pan, which is kind of a bowl that has these different ridges on it. And you have to be bent over in the river and you have to really work at it to filter through all the sediment before you get to any of the fine particulate or any smaller gold nuggets or gold dust and particles. So it's really the sluice boxes are the easier option versus gold panning. And according to the story, they almost immediately started to find gold. And so much so that within a few days, they decided that they had found enough and really couldn't carry any more with them. So they packed up their camp and headed back down the river and figuring they could sell off this gold once they got back to Edmonton and just make a fortune. Well, on the day that they left, the river was angry. Not far into their journey out of the Nahani Valley, they hit some really intense rapids, which wound up capsizing their canoe, and it broke it into pieces. The McLeod brothers managed to grab some of their supplies and swim to shore, a couple pieces of wood from the canoe, but not before the rest of their supplies and all of their gold sank into the river. Talk about bad luck, right? And I should mention that the rivers in the Nahani Valley are reported to be really deep. So there was no getting that gold back or any of their other supplies. So Frank, Willie, and Charlie swim to shore. They're thankful to have their lives, but they're devastated at the loss of how long it took them to get out there, the whole journey, and with how much gold they found. So they decided that they weren't going to throw in the towel that easy. Luckily, they managed to save a couple tools from their prospecting gear and with the wood that they saved and with the tools they were able to still have on hand, they managed to fashion a new canoe. They figured at the very least that they could head back to the campsite they were at and prospect for gold for a day or two and get enough to make it worth their while since they had hit pay dirt. However, after they returned to their camp and set everything back up, they didn't find any gold at all. It's like they totally depleted that section of the river. Disappointed by the lack of gold, the McLeod brothers decided to pack up and head home and that they would try again the following year. And thankfully, this time, their trip out of the valley was uneventful and they made it home in one piece. Almost immediately, Frank and Willie started to plan their next expedition out there since they know there's gold to be found and that they could get rich since they pretty much just were. Charlie, on the other hand, decided that he wasn't willing to risk his life again after the canoe capsized, so he was out. The following summer in 1905, Frank and Willie stayed true to their plan and departed up the South Nahani one more time this time with their friend Robert Weir as a replacement for Charlie, who was also helping to fund this trip. However, they went into the Nahani that year and were never heard from again. Now, sometimes prospectors in those days were gone for literally years at a time, and with no infrastructure out there or civilization, modern communications like we have today, it wasn't like you could really get a message out to people and let them know that you were okay. Three years passed since Frank and Willie and Robert Weir had ventured back into the Nahani Valley, and their brother Charlie, who was the younger brother, started to grow concerned. Fearing the worst, he wound up mounting a search party with some ex-mounted police, First Nations members, and trappers that he knew to locate his brothers. This ragtag crew traveled upriver for several days, tracking and scanning the shorelines of the river, finding no sign of any human activity. They traveled deep into the wilderness, all the way to the Big Bend in the South Nahani, where the river jackknifes back on itself and opens up into a stretch of the river called Second Canyon that has these cliff faces boxing in the river with pretty much no shoreline. And there's these cliff faces that are thousands of feet high. And this goes for miles. 
And these canyon walls also block out the sun, so not only are you boxed in, but it's also dark and cold. There's no shoreline here, like I said, and the river is impossibly deep. There's reports of parts of this river being up to 4,000 feet deep, if you can believe it. So you're basically stuck in your boat until you get through this part, boxed in by these canyon walls thousands of feet high and an abyss of water that goes down thousands of feet. So if something goes wrong, you're going to be in a bad way. It really makes you wonder what also could be hiding down there, right? And another thing that adds to the ominousness of this canyon is that you can see dozens and dozens of these cave openings in the cliff faces, save for a few that are around the level of the river. Nobody has been up there to explore. So who knows what's hiding in these caves? And the whole area up there in general is reported to have a vast and complex network of these cave systems too. So sounds like it would be great to get some drones out there, at least to check out some of the immediate entrances to some of these caves. And this cave network could also come into play later on. Now Charlie and his team make it to an area along the river called First Canyon, and the shoreline begins to open up quite a bit. You can actually get off the boat and you can access the vast forests of the area. Almost immediately, they spotted a tent and headed towards the shore. But what they discovered was a grisly scene. Along this flat stretch of river, which has since been named Headless Valley or Dead Man Valley, they see a dead body outside of this tent. And as they approach the body, they can see that it was missing its head and its body had been burned. Not only that, but whoever this was had their arms stretched out, reaching for a nearby rifle that was still propped up against a tree. The team then walked around to the other side of the tent where the entrance was, which faced away from the river, and they found a second body laying partly inside and outside of the entrance. As it turns out, this body too was headless. And since then, of course, this place has been known as the Valley of Headless Men. Charlie and the other team members searched fruitlessly for the heads of these bodies but they were nowhere to be found. Now, the team searched through the belongings of these people. They had been curiously untouched, and they came to the conclusion that these bodies were actually the bodies of Charlie's brothers, Frank and Willie. He recognized a number of the items that they had with them. The other thing that they found was a journal with an entry saying, we found a fine prospect, but there was no gold anywhere in the camp. So clearly, Frank and Willie had struck pay dirt, but somebody or something wasn't having it. Curiously, their friend Robert Weir, who had financed the trip, was nowhere to be found at the campsite. So there were some theories of foul play on Robert's part. However, months later, after the bodies of the McLeod brothers were found, this partial human skeleton was discovered further upriver, and this one actually still had its skull, and it was attributed to being the body of Robert Weir, although there was nothing to confirm that it was actually him. Now, after Charlie and his team returned to the nearest city, they got in touch with the local mounted police to investigate what had happened, but their conclusion explained that the McLeods and Robert Weir simply died of starvation, and the reason why they were missing their heads was from scavenging animals. Something that could validate that theory is that some of their sloughed off hair was found around the skeletons which could indicate that they were there for a while decomposing and scavengers came in and picked off their heads. But then why were the bodies not touched? The answer to that could be that those kinds of scavenging animals could have an aversion to human clothing and blankets, but others were certain that the McLeod brothers' heads were removed during or shortly after a moment of attack from someone or something. Clearly, 
one of the brothers reaching for a rifle in the moment of death would indicate that there was somebody or something else that was a threat that was attacking them. And Charlie didn't buy the official explanation, and he figured that they must have been attacked by native tribes in the area or something other than what the authorities had described and come to the conclusion of. It doesn't make much sense, seeing as how the McClouds were experienced outdoorsmen and would clearly be able to hunt for fish or food, so how and why would they starve to death? Additionally, why only take the head when the rest of the body is there if it was scavenging animals? More importantly, who burned the bodies? And also, if they found a fine prospect, why was there no gold? The whole thing is just strange and seems to have been totally written off by the authorities, but perhaps we might get an idea of what happened to them the further down the rabbit hole we go. Word of the McLeod's fate spread like wildfire among Northern Canadian communities, and even then different theories and ideas sprang up. Some believe that there were hairy cave-dwelling giants that killed them, or even a mythical and elusive tribe called the Naha that had caught them trespassing onto their sacred hunting grounds, or there was some kind of serial killer out there, or a rogue rival prospector murdered them and took the gold, or maybe it was even Robert Weir that did it. Interestingly, there's an account in the book where in 1926 or so, Charlie McLeod was at this trading post outside of Edmonton which by today's standards is something like a 14 to 15 hour drive south of Nahani Butte. And the story goes that he was browsing around in this trading post and he encountered someone who looked really familiar and he strikes up a conversation with this man. The conversation turned into talking about the McLeod brothers' deaths decades prior. And this guy says to Charlie in this conspiratorial type of tone that As a matter of fact, it was me who buried those fellows, and Charlie then recognized this man to be Robert Weir. And Charlie is naturally like, what? And grabs his arm and says, I hope you're joking because I'm their brother. Robert, or supposedly Robert, then breaks free of Charlie's grasp and books it out of the trading post. Charlie then manages to track this guy down to a small farm in the town of Viking, which is about an hour and a half southeast of Edmonton. The guy apparently saw Charlie coming down his driveway, so he locked himself in the barn of his property, and the story goes that Weir shot himself in the head, and then apparently the sparks from his revolver going off ignited the hay next to him, and the whole place burned to the ground. I'm not sure there's anything to really substantiate this particular story, but it is an interesting anecdote at the very least. So there are additional stories of people losing their heads in the Nahani Valley. Among the other prospectors who dared to enter the valley, there was this Norwegian woodsman named Martin Jorgensen. Jorgensen entered the valley in 1910. The following year, he had sent word out with a Dene guide that he had found lots of gold to his friends back home, and then he was never heard from again. When nobody had heard from him for a couple of years, they decided that they needed to go out into the valley to check on him. They got out to the spot where he said he had made camp and found his headless corpse about a mile up from the mouth of the Flat River in 1915. It turns out Jorgensen had built himself a log cabin to live in while he mined and prospected for gold, but just beyond his headless corpse were the charred remains of his cabin, and just like the McLeod brothers, his head was also never found. And just like the previous case, authorities attributed his death to starving or freezing to death in that animal predation and scavenging was why his head was missing. And curiously, they made no connection to the deaths of the McLeod brothers from 10 years prior. Now, after Jorgensen's death, many other prospectors met a similar fate. In the winter of 1922, the headless body of a World War I veteran named John O'Brien was discovered on a mountainside, 
not far from the Headless Valley. He had gone in with a friend of his to try their hand at striking it rich with gold, and they were never heard from again. It's a familiar tale at this point. And when a crew went in to find him and his friend, they found his body hunched over a fire pit with a matchbook stuck to his frozen hands. It was decided that he froze to death while starting a fire, but he had none of the typical hallmarks of slowly freezing to death. He apparently looked like he was happy and enjoying the warmth of a fire as well, and it was almost as if he had been flash frozen in place. Part of me thinks there could be hypothermia involved, but who knows exactly. And there's a few more cases I'm going to quickly list off here. This one sounds straight out of Missing 411. In 1928, there was this man named Angus Hall, and he was with his party of prospectors and decided to venture ahead and just vanished completely. No sign of him was apparently ever found. Maybe he rolled down into a creek bed or fell into a hole. Who knows? Or maybe there was some high strangeness involved and he got teleported away or something like that. In 1931, another charred body was found in the Headless Valley. This time, it was a man named Phil Powers. And after investigating, the mounted police attributed his death to a faulty stovepipe in his cabin, which burned the place down and him with it. However, most who have looked into this story don't buy that explanation at all, and the situation seemed far more consistent with murder and arson. And then in 1936, a team of prospectors named Joe Mulholland and Bill Epier went missing, and despite years of searching, their bodies were never recovered. The only thing that authorities found of theirs was their burned-down cabin. Seems to be a recurring theme. Then in 1945, an Ontario prospector named Ernest Savard had gone looking for gold in the Nahani Valley and was later found decapitated while still in his sleeping bag. So who's running around out in the Nahani Valley chopping people's heads off? Ultimately, all of these mysterious and bizarre deaths led many to believe that this place is cursed or haunted by some unseen force. And most of these accounts, of course, are 70 to 100 years old or older, However, there have been cases as recently as 2005 of people going missing out there or dying under mysterious circumstances. So it really makes you wonder what's really going on out there. Perhaps one of the most bizarre stories of somebody going missing in the Nahani Valley is that of a young woman named Annie Lafferty. You might find her name is also May Lafferty. Some people think it's Annie May Lafferty. But I digress. Annie lived in Fort Simpson and was a local tribes member of Mady's descent. Evidently, she was known to be a little bit neurotic and strange, which will come into play as we go along here. In the summer of 1926, she had gone out with her cousin Mary and her husband Poole Fields with a Nahani Indian hunting party into the Nahani Valley. They were near Flat River, where she apparently dipped off the trail and wandered into the forest. So some of the hunters in the group decided to break off and go find her. They managed to catch on to her trail quickly, but she was nowhere in sight. The hunters kept on the trail and would find shredded articles of her clothing placed on tree branches, kind of like she was leaving breadcrumbs for them to follow. Eventually, they collected so much of her clothing that she had to have been completely naked at that point. And apparently the mosquitoes in this area during the summer are totally brutal and it's bad enough with clothes on, but without them, I would imagine that you would literally get eaten alive. And despite this, Annie's trail apparently kept going and the hunters followed it for nine days without any explanation as to her rhyme or reason for bugging out 
or how she was surviving and outrunning these hunters who were in peak physical condition. There is another version of the story where she leaves the camp in the middle of the night. So it's unclear exactly what really happened or when she went missing. But here's where it gets strange. They follow the trail until it ended at this massive cliff. And the hunters couldn't believe that she would have scaled down it. It was too tall, too dangerous. They thought maybe she jumped. But to be sure, some of the braver, more skilled hunters at hiking on cliffs scaled down a little ways. And sure enough, they found something placed on one of the ledges below. And it was a pair of moccasins that were clearly hers. So at this point, the hunters decided to head out of the wilderness, go back to the rest of their team and get a report in that. Annie went missing to the authorities. So the authorities went out and tried searching for her, but they too came up empty handed with no sign of Annie. And it's assumed that she likely succumbed to the elements. How would you survive out there without clothes or supplies, food, drinkable water? However, months later, there was this guy named Charlie who had overheard the story of a woman who was in this hunting party that went missing in this area of the flat river where they were at. And he realized that something strange and unnerving that he witnessed a few months back could have been connected to the disappearance of Annie Lafferty. So he decided to report what he saw to the mounted police. And as it turns out, one night he was camping on the shores of the Flat River around the time of Annie's disappearance. In fact, it was the night of her disappearance. He knew that there was this hunting party nearby. He could hear them across the river. He wasn't a part of it, of course, but he went to sleep near the river's edge that night. And later in the evening, he was woken up by the sound of rocks splashing into the river. So he sits up from his sleeping bag to scan the area to make sure there wasn't a big animal like a bear or a moose nearby. He doesn't see anything. And so he's like, okay, maybe that's just nothing. But a few moments of silence happen and then the splashing sound happens again. So he tries to focus his vision the best he can in the dark away on the opposite side of the river. He can make out movement. And the more he focuses on it and his vision adjusts to the, the dark light, he sees what could only be described as a naked woman on all fours, scurrying up a mountainside nearby, kicking up rocks as she went along. After a moment of viewing this bizarre sight, the woman stops dead in her tracks and turns her face towards the river where he can kind of see her. And Charlie says that he recoiled in horror as to what he saw. He described her face as looking like it was crazy and possessed. She had this ear to ear smile across her face and clearly there was something wrong with her, but he didn't dare go after her for fear of his own safety going out into the Nahani Valley in the dark. And based on the, descriptions of what the authorities had of Annie, he believed that the woman that he saw that night was her. And to this day, we still don't know what exactly happened to Annie Lafferty. Was this woman her? Was she possessed by something? Did she have a psychotic break? What exactly happened? It's still a mystery to this day. And definitely one of the stranger tales coming from this area. So who or what was killing all of these prospectors in the valley? If it wasn't something like starvation or animal attack or disease or freezing to death. Well, the Diné people have a legend of this enemy tribe called the Naha, which is partly where the name Nahani is derived from. Just speaking the word is considered to be a bad omen due to the history that they had with this tribe. 
the Naha were said to be extremely violent and nomadic, moving from place to place in the Mackenzie Mountain region. They lived up in the mountains and they would periodically travel down to the valleys below to brutally attack the other tribes that lived in the area. However, when the Naha decided to move into the Nahani River Valley, they vanished without a trace, as if the whole area had swallowed them up. The Dene and other tribes, however, rarely, if ever, went in there as they believed it to be haunted ground before the Naha went in, and definitely not after the Naha never came out. Now, this legend has sparked theories to explain disappearing people, the beheadings, and other strange happenings that go on there. And as far as I've read, there doesn't seem to be any conclusive evidence proving it one way or the other. But what if there is this lost, hidden tribe in the Nahani Valley who have been cut off from other human contact for hundreds, if not thousands of years? Because we don't know exactly how far the folklore goes back in time if people have been in this area for nine to 10,000 years. There's plenty of game for people to survive out there. And if there's these valleys that have hot springs keeping certain areas mild in the winter with lush vegetation in the summer and plenty of game animals to hunt, I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to think that there could be someone else up there that we don't know about. And if not someone, then maybe something, not human. All right, so beyond headless prospectors, people going missing or descending into madness out there, there's also several legends of cryptids and creatures and evil spirits who call the Nahani Valley home. The first one I'm going to talk about here is the Wahila. Legends of this creature date back well into the folklore of the Dene people, but we're going to first look at a 1965 account from a man named Frank Graves. That summer, Frank spent a lot of time in Nahani Butte, hearing stories of people going in, and if they came out of the valley, they were scared out of their wits of the wild country out there. As he got to know the locals and they began to trust him more, they agreed to give him a tour of the South Nahani River. And along the way, his guides are showing him old burned-out cabins and encampments along the river's edge, rifles and equipment left behind by wary adventurers and prospectors. They ventured as far as Virginia Falls, which is pretty much where the boat ride stops on this river unless you build a boat and go to the next level up and it's this gargantuan waterfall split in half by this massive rock spire i'll link some pictures in the show notes for this place because it's it's a beautiful area and it looks something like out of a fantasy novel like lord of the rings the northwest territories even bills this place as the world's most beautiful waterfall and the waterfall itself is something like twice as high and big as Niagara Falls, which is huge. Now, Frank Graves would eventually take several trips out here with local guides. And during one such trip, he even came across this 16 inch long humanoid footprint. But we'll get into that in a little bit. So several days into his first trip, Frank and his Dene guide were spending the day hunting for something to eat for dinner. Apparently, there were plenty of birds in the area, so they decided to split up. His Dene guide took the low ground and his dog along with him, and Frank took the high ground. Some time passes, and Frank suddenly hears this rustling sound through the woods. He thinks that it's his guide's dog, since this dog wasn't really. A hunting dog and he would just barrel through the woods and because frank thinks this is just a dog he doesn't raise his shotgun and leaves himself completely unprepared for what was about to happen sure enough it wasn't his guide's dog but something else entirely whatever this thing was crashed out of the tree line into this open area where frank was standing a mere 20 paces away from him it was covered in white fur and 
It was just massive and stood there staring at him. At first, Frank thought it was a polar bear, but polar bears don't typically live in this area. And the more he looked at this beast, he realized that, no, it wasn't a polar bear. It was more like a wolf, but it was significantly larger than any wolf that he had ever seen. Realizing the danger of the situation, Frank finally pulls up his shotgun and he took a shot at it. It was loaded with birdshot, so it wouldn't do that much damage to a larger animal. They might flinch, but whatever this thing was took the full brunt of the birdshot and didn't even recoil. It just simply turned around and walked back into the forest. Frank took one more shot at it, hitting it in its hindquarters, but it just shrugged it off and kept going. This sounds a lot like the story from Skinwalker Ranch, where this giant wolf came onto the property and attacked a calf that was in a pen and tried pulling it out through the pen with its head in its mouth. And so Terry Sherman shoots this animal several times, once at point blank range, and it did nothing and basically just walked off. So when Frank's Dene guide came back asking him what he caught since he heard the gunfire, Frank didn't really have words for what he had just witnessed. Frank wrote into Ivan Sanderson about his encounter with a beast that he called the Wahila. This legendary wolf-like cryptid that many people believe inhabits this vast wilderness. Ivan Sanderson died in 1973, but in a posthumous article released in 1974 titled The Dire Wolf, Sanderson revealed further details not included in his letter and likely from a face-to-face conversation or phone call that Frank had with him. Apparently, this animal stood almost four feet tall at the shoulder. Its fur was kind of shaggy, long, and white, like Frank had described. And when Frank described what he saw to his guide, the guide said that what he saw wasn't a wolf, and instead may have been an animal that was responsible for the deaths of people like the McLeod brothers, Martin Jorgensen, and other headless victims that had been found in the valley over the years. Now, I'm not sure if anyone listening has seen a real-life wolf up close. I have. They are big animals, for sure, but four feet tall at the shoulder, I think, dwarfs a regular wolf, which are also already way bigger than a normal dog. So Frank's Dene guide went over the differences of these creatures compared to wolves. First of all, they were all around much larger than wolves, but they had these distinctive short ears. They also had a wider face and shorter legs with splayed feet. Their tails were also said to be thick, kind of closer resembling that of an otter. And they were also supposed to be more like scavengers than predators, but the Diné people said they were impossible to kill. He also mentioned that they're solitary animals, which are rare to find in the Nahani Valley, and only a few of them are supposed to live there year-round, but the majority of this already very small population live further north in the tundra. So since the article came out, there's been a lot of speculation as to what this thing was. Was it more akin to a dire wolf, or was it something like the extinct American hyena, or was it something like an amphicyanid, better known as a bear dog? But All three of these animals are supposed to have been extinct for thousands of years, basically since the end of the last ice age. But perhaps there could be a small pocket of these things that survived in the Nahani Valley or neighboring areas. And others have theorized that they could also be something like a supernatural entity as well. Or perhaps there was some kind of time slip going on and these prehistoric animals briefly blinked into our dimension before going back to their own. It's an interesting thought, but an animal like that, I feel like with the game population, could potentially survive. Obviously, we don't have proof yet, but there could be something out there. 
there have been some comparisons made to Montana's Shunka Warakin, which was a direwolf type of cryptid. And there's actually a taxidermied body of the animal that was believed to be this cryptid on display in a museum in Montana. So who knows? There could be something out there. All right, time to get into humanoids. Now, Nahani Valley isn't without its legends and sightings of humanoid-type creatures. One of them is known as the Nukluk. This name translates to Man of the Bush, and according to legends, these beings have been encountered out there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and even into the Yukon Territory and as far as the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska, which is wild. But there are a couple of stories of note here that I'm going to go over briefly. The first modern reports came in the spring of 1964 near Fort Simpson. The first up was a sighting from this guy named John Baptist, who was a janitor at the local school. He had gone out trapping with some friends when he saw this stocky human-shaped creature come out of the woods. It had a beard, but it wasn't wearing clothes. It looked sort of like a person, but not quite. So whoever or whatever this thing was, was anyone's best guess. So Baptist and his friends approached out of curiosity, but whoever or whatever this was growled at them and then ran back into the woods. In another sighting, a local Diné woman in Honey Butte also saw a similar or maybe even the same thing at dusk. She had the feeling that something was outside her home while she was weaving a basket. And so she opened the front door to see if anyone was out there, but there wasn't anything or anyone at all. So she closes the door, goes back to basket weaving, and some time passes. And she looks up at a nearby window and sees this weird face looking in at her. And whatever it was didn't really look quite human. So she got up quickly and ran outside. But by the time she got out there, there was nobody or no creature out there to be seen. And there was another sighting that happened with a group of tribesmen from Fort Leard where they were trapping at one of the nearby rivers and claimed to have encountered a strange humanoid being, although it looked less like the classic eight to 10 foot tall hairy Bigfoot. And instead it resembled something much more like a relict hominid, like a Neanderthal. So we've got cavemen in the Nahani. Why not? Maybe they're the ones taking out the prospectors. And then in June of that year, a 14-year-old named Jerry from Fort Simpson reported seeing a similar creature. It was around 9 p.m. at night, and the family dog had been barking wildly. Jerry and his father normally dismissed the dog barking at night, but this time it was different, so they went out to investigate. Their dog stopped barking once they arrived, and the whole scene was just very quiet. So Jerry... His dad had this flashlight and he turned it on to scan the property to make sure there was no big predator out there or anything like that. And then they hear this twig snap. So Jerry, his dad, zeroes in on the source and illuminated this short, hairy, humanoid being. They had a standoff for a few seconds, just staring each other down. But once the dog started barking again, this creature ran off across the open part of the property before banking into the nearby forest. And according to Jerry, it had a black head of long hair and a long beard down to its waist, and it was covered in thick body hair on its arms, legs, and torso. Interestingly, its head was said to also be more conical shaped. And unlike Bigfoot, this Neanderthal-looking guy also had on boots and a loincloth. So it's either we've got relic hominids up there or there's some feral people just living out in the wilderness. Who knows? Or potentially 
lost tribes living out in the Nahani. Before I sign off for today's episode, there's one more creature that I wanted to touch on. This is another humanoid known as the Nakani. Legends from the Dene tribes spoke about these creatures ranging from the eastern banks of the Mackenzie River and well into the Nahani River Valley. These wild men, as they were described, were as real as a bear or a wolf to the Dene, and they would often be harassed or hunted at night, lurking just outside of sight from the illumination of a campfire. Frontiersmen who reached this area in the 18 and 1900s and encountered the Dene learned of the Nakani legend. Often, if the Dene suspected a Nakani was nearby a campsite, they would have abandoned their camp completely and find the nearest lake with an island on it. And from there, they would canoe to the island and remain there, believing that the Nakani couldn't swim, so they would be safe. And they would wait for a time until they believed that the coast was clear. Less often, Dene encampments would stand their ground and shoot their guns into the forest if they believed one of these things was stalking them. And as far as how these things were described, according to the folklore, they were said to be hairy cannibalistic giants with ghoulish faces and fingers tipped with long claws. Some descriptions called them troglodytes, as it's said that they lived in the cave systems in the Nahani Valley and would come out at night to hunt. They're humanoid in appearance, but there's definitely an uncanny valley vibe to them. They were also said to have red eyes and long muscular arms, and they were very tall. According to a British adventurer named Michael H. Mason, who wrote a book called The Arctic Forests in 1924, he described these things as terrible wild men with red eyes, enormous height, completely covered with long hair. According to Mason, they left a large human-like set of tracks that were long and narrow, and these things were so strong that they could tear entire trees out of the ground. Now, this description of ripping trees from the ground reminds me of that one video that came from a Canadian logging crew. I believe they were in Alberta, where something is seen sort of obscured by the tree line, a little bit off camera, but the ground kind of slopes. So whatever it is doesn't look that tall, but it's actually pretty tall. And it pulls this tree out of the ground and it chucks it towards this logging crew. Thinker Thunker did a video analysis of it. In fact, I think it was one of Thinker Thunker's viewers that sent him this video so that he could analyze it. It's pretty wild and definitely a really interesting analysis. I'll get a link for it and throw that in the show notes if you haven't seen it. Now, another adventurer named Philip Godsell from the Hudson Bay Company, based on the stories, he was told that comparing these things was sounding like a cross between a gorilla and a gargoyle who were twice the size of a human and possessed incredible strength and speed. And in a 1968 issue of Saga magazine, there was this article written about the Nakani saying that they kill their prey by cutting the heads off their victims. So now we've come full circle. Could there be a race of these cave-dwelling humanoids? They sound sort of like Bigfoot, but also not. There's certain aspects of them that remind me of something like the Pale Crawlers, which I did an episode on, and specifically the Patreon segment that I did recounting the tale of Don Herbert, who ran into one of these things that paced his truck on a remote stretch of road outside of Hay River and Northwest Territories. Now, Pale Crawlers are said to be hairless, but perhaps there are some variations with them, or maybe some just have no hair at all, or perhaps they're unrelated. Maybe they're more like the Wendigo or the Mahaha, which are legends in nearby areas as well. According to an article on mysteriesofcanada.com about the Nakani, some Dene people have said that the 
Nakani are indigenous tribe members who either commit murder or engage in cannibalism. Sounds a lot like Wendigo. And as a result, they're cast out of society into the wilderness and their life of surviving in the bush leads them to having this grotesque and feral appearance. Or perhaps they're part of the lost Naha tribe or feral humans in general. Either way, it's thought that whatever these things are could very well be responsible for the headless men of the Nahani Valley. And that, my friends, is where I'm going to leave things for the regular show today. The Legends of the Nahani Valley by Hammerson Peters is definitely a must-have book if you love stories and legends of mysterious places. And this place has it all. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes for you to check out. And I could keep going because each chapter of this book is a whole other rabbit hole to get into. There's even more creatures and even paranormal stuff, evil spirits. There's supposed to be something called the White Queen and just so much more wild, wild stuff. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode today. Perhaps I'll come back and do a part two on the Nahani Valley, but it definitely feels good to be back researching for episodes for everyone out there who listens to this show. So expect more of those soon. As always, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone out there listening. Those of you who have been here since the beginning and to those who have joined along the way. And also welcome to new listeners because there have been a lot more people listening to the show lately. So thanks for checking out the Strangeology podcast, listening and sharing it around. It gets the word out and it's super helpful. In fact, the Strangeology podcast wouldn't be possible or wouldn't be where it is today without the support of listeners like you. There's a lot more to come, so stick around. If you're looking for a way to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology to learn more. Membership gets you some really cool benefits and perks like shoutouts, merch discounts to my shop, exclusive merch, ad-free episodes, as well as early access to new episodes, along with access to the exclusive members-only Strangeology Beyond episode segment and more. There's even a t-shirt club of the month where you get a brand new Homestate Cryptid t-shirt every month. So again, that's patreon.com forward slash strangeology. Sign up today for less than the cost of a cup of coffee per month. I appreciate the support and thank you to all members for your continued support and helping keep the lights on at Strangeology HQ. If you're looking for another way to support the show, shameless plug, of course, you can check out my Etsy shop. I do all of my own designs and I've got a whole assortment of cryptid, alien and otherwise 40 and gear and accessories available on things like T-shirts, hoodies, long sleeves and tank tops. I also have stickers, magnets, prints, mugs, tumblers for incoming colder weather. I've got blankets along with enamel pins and more. I'm always adding new designs as often as I can. I just put a few new alien themed designs, so go check those out. And I'm always looking to add in new types of items as well. I'm hoping to do some patches at some point. We'll get there. Anyway, you can find this all at strangeology.etsy.com. Again, that's strangeology.etsy.com. I appreciate the support. To any advertisers or companies out there looking to collaborate with the Strangeology podcast or would like to be considered for an interview on the show, please send all business inquiries to info at strangeology.com. And finally, don't forget to follow me over on my social media accounts again for daily updates and more content outside of the podcast. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, X, and Threads. I'm most active posting short form video content on Instagram and TikTok, as well as Facebook now. So if you're looking for more from me, definitely check that out. 
All those links will be in the show notes. All right, I think that's about all from me for now. I'm going to take a short break, and when I come back for Strangeology Beyond, the members-only portion of the show, I'm going to dive into a couple more stories about encounters with prehistoric beasts like dinosaurs within the Nahani Valley. You won't want to miss it. Members, stick with me after this short break for Strangeology Beyond, and for everyone else, I'll catch you next time. Make sure to take care of yourselves and each other, and keep it strange. Strangeology Beyond, your members-only segment of the show. I hope you enjoyed the main show today. All-